Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Today's episode has been a long time coming. We're going to be talking about former Vice President Senator Joe Biden and his race for the 2020 Democratic Party primary. I tried to do this episode several months ago uh, with our guest today. We had it all lined up and everything. But uh, Biden, the hair sniffer, got himself into a little bit of a pickle in the sexual (laughs) harassment uh, claims. And they seem to have been either resolved and or swept under the table and or perhaps the urgency of facing down a potential Bernie Sanders nomination by the neoliberal centrists was just too extreme. And now it seems like Biden has the confidence to enter the race. And so here we are. We're doing officially our Biden episode and joining me on the line. There's no better man on the left to face down this topic than my guest today. Branko Marchatich is a staff writer at Jacobin. You can find his work at In These Times and elsewhere. Branko, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. And then, by the way, kudos on pronouncing my name uh, correctly. I got it right this time, you suggest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, from our previous interactions, I'm not sure if you actually got it wrong that time, but yeah, this is, this is pretty good. I mean, I've been practicing. I've been practicing. You know, there's, a, there's another Branco out there. He does like uh, foreign policy. And I often uh, get, get you, yeah. and he, you and him confused. And I've seen other people do that as well. So if you've got like a kind of uh, idiosyncratic, unique name, you know, you better hope that nobody else is out there in your field uh, who, who, who does the same thing. So anyway, this is the Branko Marchatich joining us, Jacobin staff writer. You have written how many articles on Biden at this point? You've probably written more about Biden than Biden has written about Biden. <laughs> yeah, uh, very possible. I want to say it's somewhere in the vicinity of maybe eight to nine. There were a few. Um, I mean, I wrote this whole series for Jackman about various aspects of Biden's record. And then I have written a few pieces uh, for In These Times, uh, which is a, a Chicago-based progressive magazine. You know, uh, more about some of the more recent stuff that Biden's been doing, um, you know, touring around the uh, country and giving speeches to union halls while uh, while taking money and, and courting support from you know, corporate America, basically. Right. There was quite a bit of speculation leading up to his announcement about a month ago. He announced in mid to late April, which is, you know, it felt late, but in the grand, you know, in the typical schedule of the way that these primaries run, like that's that's still quite early or, or maybe perhaps even right on time, you would say. But compared to the field of candidates that was growing at that point, it seemed like he would never announce a lot of people speculated that, again, as I opened the show, that his his penchant for hair sniffing and shoulder rubbing would undo him in today's hashtag Me Too era. Other people were speculating that you know he was making so much money on this corporate uh, speaking tour that he was on that you know why bother running for president at this point? He can just sort of collect his six figure speakers fees and and uh, retire and walk off into the sunset. But he's done it. He's announced. Talk to us a little bit about the timing of this announcement. What, what do you think finally caused him to throw that into the ring? Well, um, I'm not really sure what um, what caused him to throw, throw it in the ring. I, th- I think he was always intending to. Why he was delaying is another question. 
uh, it was definitely a risk because what happened was a lot of people who were inclined to work for his campaign ended up taking jobs with uh, other campaigns, um, you know, various advisors and, and posters and consultants and stuff. So, uh, so he did take a bit of a risk, but it doesn't seem to have really hurt him. I don't know why such a long delay. I've read reports that, you know, he was on the fence and hemming and hawing and uh, not entirely sure if he should jump in the race. But to me, that also seems a little bit, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, Biden's wanted to be president for his entire life, you know, uh, much like many senators who have been uh, in politics for as long as he has, which is, you know, around, what, 40, 50 years at this point. So, yeah, I mean, he, I think, always intended to run. He wanted to run in 2015, but the, I think the combination of his, uh, the death of his son and uh, the Clinton machine, for lack of a better word, being too intimidating kind of warded him off. And this is really the last time that he can that he can throw his hand in the ring because at this point, I mean, it's similar to Sanders. Uh, he's now what seventy six, getting up there in years, uh, running out of, running out of time. I don't think people care about that as much at the moment, but when he starts getting into the uh, the eighty territory, uh, in, uh, voters may be uh, less inclined to vote for him. Even especially now, he's sort of making some gaffes that whether whether fairly or not are being interpreted as kind of a sign of his old uh older age he, he called uh theresa may margaret thatcher for example yeah. uh yeah so he seems to forget uh, his own yeah. statements about uh, the climate uh, the climate situation wherein he said he would you know chart out a, a middle ground and now he's moonwalking uh, on those types of things so i mean you know it, typical politicians are are shady they lie they misrepresent their own statements but when you get up there in age that can really be used against you as kind of, you know, claiming that you're, you're getting senile. You're not, you know, uh, you don't have the mental faculty. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a point well taken. Now, let me, let me ask you this. One of the things I want to sort of trace throughout the course of this interview, and you can kind of give me your initial thoughts, and we can revisit this question over the course of the next 45 minutes or so. I want to go beyond the kind of, ah, you know, Joe Biden's a very bad guy kind of shtick. Because if you're listening to DPS, you already know that. I do think it's very important that you make this argument in the pages of Jacobin magazine. And I think it's even more important that we make these arguments in the mainstream whenever we get the opportunity. But we are going to get that opportunity very soon. The field is going to thin out. We're going to see quite likely uh, the top three emerge, top four, five emerge pretty quickly, I think, once the, you know, the bottom 18 to 25 get their book deals. <laughs> So what we're going to see is a very clarifying debate, a very clarifying contest between this emergent class struggle social democratic wing of the, the, the center to center left, uh, all the way to the far left in the United States versus this kind of extreme center, as Tarek Ali has called it, these neoliberal mainstream hawks who you know talk a good game to their liberal base, but in office – uh, you know, their, their, their legislation tells a different story. So talk to me about the strategy that we're seeing right now coming from Biden. We're seeing him go up against AO, the likes of AOC. We're seeing him obviously talk down Bernie Sanders policies on the campaign trail. What are we seeing right now in terms of the neoliberal playbook versus the left? Yeah, Biden right now is basically running a traditional Democratic campaign. And when I say traditional, I mean traditional for the last uh, few decades, um, you know, in the post-Clinton uh, era, which is basically to 
on the one hand, present himself as a staunch liberal to Democratic voters uh, for the primaries, while also touting the fact that he's a moderate. Two contradictory things that the politicians and particularly Democratic politicians have you know, typically tried to do, present themselves as both, both moderates and people who will faithfully um, execute the, the party's most ambitious desires. Besides that, he's also doing a, again, not very unique strategy. Uh, in fact, we saw it deployed in 2016. I think everyone can remember how that went, where Biden is making overtures to, to, to unions and, and the working class and basically just... Uh, Voters in general, you know, saying that he's going to fight for them, um, that he's going to do all this, uh, all this ambitious stuff, while at the same time courting the the, the world of co- corporate America for uh, funding, for campaign funding, doing uh, fundraisers with hedge fund managers. Uh, he was at a, uh, I think his first fundraiser that he did was at um, the, the, one of the people on the on the committee for the fundraiser was a uh, union-busting lawyer. Um, and that came right around the time that he got that big endorsement from the National Firefighters Union, too, at the same time. That's right, really yeah. Embarrassing stuff. Yeah, and that sort of has, I mean, you know, he at one other speech, I wrote about this for these times, he at one other speech um, kind of trashed Wall Street and, and hedge fund managers. Not not super harshly, but he just basically said, you know, you, you are the people who built this country. It's not the Wall, it's not Wall Street and the hedge fund managers and so on and so forth. But actually, for the last two years, Biden has been uh, has been pretty heavily courting hedge fund managers. You know, they've been doing fundraisers for him. Uh, some of his most uh, ardent supporters, um, even before he threw his hand in the ring, were hedge fund managers. In fact, the first time that Biden not threw his hand in the ring, but hinted they they would run, because for months into the Trump presidency, he was saying, "No, no, no, I'm not going to run. I have no plans to run." So on and so forth. The first time he hinted that actually he was open to a uh, 2020 campaign, he was at an annual gathering of hedge fund managers and other Wall Street types that is hosted by none other than uh, than uh, um, uh, Scaramucci. Mooch. Uh, oh, I didn't that's know right, Mooch was Mooch. still uh, you know in the public uh, limelight. I thought he'd retreated to his you know his brothels in uh, Thailand. <laughs> Whatever he's up to these, you know, whatever classy behaviors he's onto. Anyway, really interesting stuff. So he's he's cozying up with the hedge fund managers. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Classic exactly. third way Democratic uh, Party playbook. And you can see how this is already playing out at these very early stages in a really exciting and clarifying way. Uh, Biden, I want you to talk about this in just a moment. You've written about it extensively, is well known as one of these most staunch defenders of the credit card industry because uh, of the that industry's power uh, and concentration in his home state of Delaware. And also just because he's a he's a shill who will say anything for for money. But I don't want to <laughs> leave that part out in any case. You see this playing out in Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's latest bill, which denigrates loan sharks, this anti-loan sharking act, which is hoping to cap credit card and other loan interest rates at 15%, I believe. There's, you know, it's, it's a complicated act, but that's what they're aiming for. So you, you can kind of see a proxy war playing out at these early phases, and it's really exciting to see that. Talk to us about how this is shaping up. Yeah, I think people interpreted that um, announcement by AOC and Sanders as a shot against Biden, which I wouldn't disagree. The specific thing that that, that bill reacts to is a Supreme Court decision, 
But uh, it is the fact that Biden has this reputation for being chummy with uh, credit card companies. MBNA is is headquartered in Delaware, which is which is Biden's state. They were one of his major donors. I think actually maybe his biggest donor career long in the Senate, and uh, actually hired his son Hunter Biden, who I'm sure we will <laughs> get to later on. He's a special boy. We'll definitely get the Hunter. Yeah. He, yes, he is. And so, uh, and at the same time that they had hired him and, and they were doing this, they were donating to Biden and doing this uh, big lobbying campaign in, in Congress, Biden ended up supporting several bills that they that they wanted, uh, one of which is the infamous bankruptcy bill that made it a lot harder for ordinary people, ordinary consumers to, to declare bankruptcy from credit card debt. So uh, yeah, Biden has this reputation as being chummy with, with credit card companies. And I think Santa's... Uh, and AOC's bill is one. It's uh, it's just the right thing to do. It's it's a it's good policy anyway, but it's also good politics. I think he is very consciously trying to stake out a contrast between him and Biden. Biden is the guy who votes for the credit card companies. I'm the guy taking them on. And that bill is about loan sharks, but it's also very much targeted towards the interest rates that, that credit card companies slap on. And that was a big part of it. So I expect this to, to be a bigger thing as the campaign goes on. I think Sanders will probably keep working to to draw these sort of implicit contrasts. His whole thing, I mean, yeah, Sanders is, a, is actually a very good politician. His whole thing is I don't get into gutter politics. I don't get into personal politics. And I, th- I think he does genuinely have disdain for that kind of thing, you know, the really kind of negative personal attacks. But he's also pretty adept at attacking or criticizing his opponent without going for what people will, will perceive as being very uh, negative or, or personal or unfair attacks. And this is one of those ways. So it sounds like Sanders is playing a medium to long game at this point. I hope that there there's a, a game of three-dimensional chess being played on, on the, not only on the part of him, but as part of his staffers <laughs> and his uh, likely supporters. I'm talking about AOC here and and other people who have not officially thrown their hat in the ring and becoming either supporters or even surrogates. But the latest polls, if you find yourself in the camp of, of most of my listeners today, being these kind of uh, qualified Bernie bros, you know, people who find themselves obviously to the left of Bernie in the sense that we are principled Marxists and we are hell bent on transitioning beyond capitalism and into socialism in the very immediate term, if if at all possible. Uh, whereas Sanders is obviously a, an elected representative of a capitalist state and is thus handcuffed in all of the ways uh, that you you might expect. But nonetheless, we're pretty hard Bernie Bros here, and and the polls aren't looking good. So talk us off the ledge. Are these <laughs> is this lead that Biden has right now? Is that substantial? Should we should we start to be concerned? It's concerning, but I think everyone should take a breath, calm down, take the head out of the noose, or take the head out of the out of the oven, whatever they're doing, and just you know just just take a breather and, and put things into perspective. We are, I think, nine months at this point from the fir- away from the first primary. There hasn't been a single debate yet. If you look at the polling, Biden is doing very well. That's you know, and and this is not to say that he couldn't win. He could absolutely win. So it's not denying that Biden is is doomed to failure. That's not at all. But there hasn't been a single debate. The polls, a lot of the time, what you're not seeing is yeah, you see the percentage of people who are buying, and you know they're saying 
they're going to go for Biden first. Most respondents, though, in these polls are saying that they don't have an opinion on, on any candidate. Because, you know, for people like us, we're people who pay attention to this stuff. We know who Joe Biden is. We know his record. We've been reading about him, not just in the last few years, but, you know, we, we saw him and, and, and paid attention to what he was doing when he was in the Obama administration. Um, we, all of us, and I'm sure your listeners uh, count on this, we all pay close attention to politics. Most people do not, especially nine months out from the campaign. Most people have had not had a chance to familiarize themselves with most of the candidates. Sanders and Biden at this point have the highest name recognition, um, and I, th- you know, that's not the only reason they're doing well. I think uh, I think Sanders is kind of really b- people obviously like his message, particularly younger people. But the fact is, most people haven't really made up any of their minds, and and a lot of them at this point are just kind of saying whatever name might come into their heads. And, you know, I've seen a lot of political journalists, for lack of a better word, well, I don't want to say melting down. That might be a little (laughs) too extreme. But evincing extreme pessimism about uh, about Biden's polling and, and what it means already, not always from the left. You know, Jonathan Chait wrote this article well, a couple of days ago when we were recording this, basically saying that, that the reason that the fact that Biden is polling well, so well right now is it throws into disrepute everything that the left has been saying for the past whatever number of years. It demonstrates that left ideas are actually not that popular and it was a, it was a terrible mistake to move left, which is incredibly broad and far-reaching conclusion to take from from a poll this far out that's, you know, Biden hasn't even put out any policy proposals. Um, so clearly it has nothing to do with policy or ideas as polling. So, you know, it, it's like, it's funny because political journalists, their job is to cover politics. They read and write about elections. They're supposed to be experts at this stuff. And yet every time there's an election, it is as if there's a memory wipe, as if the characters of Men in Black show up <laughs> And and use the uh, whatever it is the they, laser. They, them. they forgot to put on their they yeah, forgot to put right. on their Ray Bans, man. That's that you know that's that's what happened to Chait. He showed up with uh, Will Smith and and uh, what's his name, and and he he got wiped by accident uh, after 2016. It's almost like these pundits are are dead and they're here to feed on the brain. <laughs> someone should and, someone and that they should, live in uh, some sort of society. Make a podcast about that. Admittedly, my podcast <laughs> isn't right. probably enough about that. It probably should be more about that. Uh, so let's take the opportunity and dunk on Chait while we can. One of the accusations that gets thrown around at this point is, well, if if you didn't believe that that Sanders polling early on when he was being shown as the the front runner was viable, you know, Chait was sort of doubting that, saying, "Ah, come on, these mm-hmm. polls aren't you know these aren't legit. It's too early." Well, what gives you, you know, what gives you cause to believe the polls now that Biden's ahead? So there's, you know, there's just this right. kind of like yeah. back and forth gotcha, you know, b- grenades being lobbed across the barricades. Mm. And, and if you if you believe in polling, if you want to go by polling, then polling shows that uh, the ideas that Sanders has put forward are very popular among not just Democratic voters, but voters of all kinds, even Republicans. Medicare for all, a higher minimum wage. We all saw that town hall he did with Fox, where the crowd, which was reportedly an ideologically diverse crowd, was literally chanting yes to all these various uh, policy proposals that that Sanders was listing off at the end of the debate. So the idea that um, 
but just because Biden was polling well, that that actually the left turn is completely wrong is is a very strange one. And you know, uh, you look at polling at this stage in previous elections. Barack Obama was never meant to be the nomination. Uh, never, never meant to be the nominee. Two thousand eight, Hillary Clinton was. So was John Edwards. Um, mm. So <laughs> Joe Biden was up there, and he uh, he ended up not so much flaming out as just kind of tapering off. Uh, he didn't really excite anyone and didn't um, master any enthusiasm. In 2006, I believe Rudy Giuliani was the Republican frontrunner. Say, so, you know, actually a bit later than than the stage we're at right now. What happened to him? He just kind of just fell off. He he didn't poll well. People uh, didn't like this, what he was selling, namely just shoehorning references to to 9/11 into every single talking point he had. Yeah. Jeb um, Bush was you a know, you go, at this at this point uh, leading up to 2016 on the Republican side. People remind us that Exactly. Jeb Bush, Hillary Clinton had an insurmountable lead and a clear path to nomination. Certainly she was not going to get threatened by some uh, wild-haired socialist showing up out of nowhere. Oh wait. Uh, you know, an even more instructive example is it wasn't even two years ago in 2017 that uh, the UK Labour Party was headed towards a, catastro- a historically catastrophic defeat. It was going to be, and it was going to prove that the left was not ascendant, and that these were these were uh, electorally poisonous ideas. In a matter of weeks, that was reversed. In a matter of weeks, not even nine months, as we have here. And these weren't uh, these weren't Jonathan Chates who were sort of making this appraisal. These were people who were fairly close to the movement. I'm thinking of people like Owen Jones and others. So <coughs> you're absolutely right. There, there. I mean, you're you're talking me off the ledge. Not only am I, you know, I've got my Bernie <laughs> hat back on. I went out and bought one of those Bernie lights. Have you seen those Bernie lights? They're kind of like the Batman lanterns that you shine into the sky, oh. and then Batman shows up. You know, when he's what's the uh, what's the like symbol? It's his, that they it's, make? Uh, it's his just... Bernie, and then it's like the you know his uh, like the top of his head logo that they have it's kind of very strange but it's like you see it and you're like oh yeah that's bernie yeah right it's like it's like uh you know like a bald head and like frazzled white hair which has now somehow <laughs> become the official logo of bernie sanders which like you know it's like it's it's charming right because he's a he's a frazzled old man right but that is but the thing bizarre. that voters say uh they most like about sanders is his scalp yeah i mean uh, really polling has shown that his, <laughs> his scalp is polling well but uh yeah i've got one of those bernie lights i'm shining it up into the clouds uh, right now over over Washington, D.C. So you've, you've talked me off the ledge very successfully. Let's talk a little bit about the strategy in terms of how he transcends his, uh, Bernie Sanders, that is, transcends his popular base and what that's going to look like going up against Biden in terms of his record and his likely policy proposals. Biden has just at every point in time demonstrated that he's more than happy to be that get off my lawn, pull your dang pants up, anti-millennial guy right i mean he has openly bashed Mm. millennials blaming them for their own failures rather than uh, you know diagnosing our neoliberal condition uh really doubling and tripling down in some really anachronistic ways i mean even the 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 most mealy-mouthed of neoliberal centrist democrats nowadays uh, wouldn't be caught dead denigrating millennials for their economic position in in the wake of the great recession and so forth. But, uh, you know, Biden's going to Biden. That's what he does. Talk to me about how mm-hmm. Bernie can position himself to start chipping away at that over 50 crowd, though. Because as you mentioned, yeah. Biden polls extraordinarily well in that realm. 
Yeah, at the moment we've got Biden kills Sanders uh, among voters over fifty. Sanders kills Biden among voters uh, who are who are you know in the sort of twenty to thirty something range, younger voters. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the one of the things I, I the, the, that quote where he bashes millennials. And by the way, disparaging a whole pool of voters for no reason that's never come back to bite a Democratic candidate. <laughs> um, but. Um, so the great thing about that quote is he says, you know, I have no sympathy for millennials because they're complaining and everything. Uh, when my generation didn't like what was going on, we went and changed things. And the great, the great thing about that quote is, you know, he's, he's talking about kind of 60s radicals and, um, and I assume referring to the civil rights movement. <laughs> and one of the fun facts about Biden is that uh, he for years claimed that he had been a civil rights activist. And then later had to admit that, that he hadn't actually done anything in the civil rights movement. He had just worked in an all-black swimming pool in Wilmington, <laughs> Delaware. That's so and, good. And he's, you know, he, he so good. Saying, yeah, and he said, you know, well, no, I wasn't there. I wasn't marching. But I, I, I knew what they were thinking and what they were feeling, you know, I, I, from, from my time at, a, at this pool. Yeah. So, you know, that's, Osmosis. that's just a, a wonderful little – yeah, exactly. I, I just love that, that anecdote. It's very – uh, it's funny, but it's also kind of very telling. But you're right, Sanders, or you know, any other candidate who's going to run on a left wing platform who wants to defeat Biden is going to have to chip away at this lead of a fifty. Which I think the mindset for a lot of voters of this age, and and it's I've certainly seen this from people I've spoken to, is that it's the typical Democratic primary voter projection where they go. Well, this is what the rest of the country thinks. And so and, – and the fact is that – and the basis on no evidence is just based on the last you know, 30 years um, of, of politics. They go, well, you know, a socialist is never going to get elected. No, the Fox News viewers are never going to go for that, even though Sanders has always done well among independents and even self-identified Republicans. And there's a poll that shows actually Fox viewers <clears throat> are more friendly towards Sanders than, than MSNBC viewers. So there's partly it's this projection. Um, I think partly it's uh, it's for people like who who want a return to normalcy, uh, what they perceive as normalcy under Biden. Biden is also seen as a a safe choice. He's a white man who is moderate, which has been the democratic option for the last few decades. Uh, it hasn't actually been that successful. I mean. Barack Obama ran as a even if even though he wasn't he ran as a progressive in 2008. Obviously, Obama was black. Um, it still is. <laughs> I don't know why I said was. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that uh, there's a there's a very strange kind of thing going on where people say, well, you know, the reason Trump won is because he's this intimidating masculine figure, which is uh, <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but uh, that's what people view. They they view the need. To find a sort of opposite of that, to find some sort of masculine figure that can like supposedly match this this macho element that he brings to the table. But in theory, and I, and I think yeah, he's seen as a safe choice, right? He's seen as the guy who can who can take on Trump and 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 he won't lose, and that's what people most care about. But I think that if you were to to provide a message that counters this, you would point to the fact that Biden has pretty consistently throughout his career been in favor of cutting spending for for entitlements um you know i mean i know some people had disagreements with that word but whatever entitlements so-called entitlements whatever you want to say medicare and social security he called for a spending freeze on these things back in the 80s and sort of 
lectured you know these special interest groups, these liberal groups for for disagreeing with him then um he voted for the uh balanced budget amendment in the nineties, which is a catastrophe, and Biden knew it was a catastrophe he he had voted against it earlier and said that it would essentially um uh make Herbert Hoover's economic policy a permanent part of American politics. Yeah, ended up voting for it anyway. Actually, was one of the few Democrats that that I think there were two or three votes away from actually from having it pass the Senate, thanks to Biden. He during Obama's administration, he was the point man for the administration's attempts to to cut medical, Medicare and Social Security as part of the the grand bargain. Um, if you believe Bob Wood, Bob Woodward's book. Uh, about this, uh, Biden was was sort of relentlessly eager to make a deal with the Republicans. That so he just caved on everything, uh, much to the chagrin of of people who were, <laughs> even people from the Obama administration who were there. And even now, he I think twenty seventeen at his uh, Biden Center, or the Biden Foundation, he did a speech where he said, you know, Paul Ryan was right. You have to do something about Medicare and Social Security. You know, do something. Uh, it's very clear what we that is. That so I, th- I think. Yeah, exactly. And you think Bernie Sanders think can make out, quite a bit of hay out of this in the debates once he gets the opportunity to to call out Biden for his record in the in the over fifty crowd. People who are over absolutely. reaching fifty in retirement are very anxious about protecting their their Medicare and Social Security benefits for sure. Yeah, yeah, and at a time when the idea is that you're meant to resist Trumpism, which whatever it was rhetorically in practice has been a typical neoliberal agenda aimed at you know, just basically cutting. Everything, everything that that people who aren't super wealthy rely on, I don't see how Biden is a good messenger for that. Um, even if you just only believe in electability, there are a lot of people who are gonna who who are gonna vo- not be excited by the fact that you know they've got two candidates in the race who essentially are gonna take aim at the things that they rely on to survive. Which we saw in twenty sixteen that when you elect a Uninspiring candidate who people don't see as that different from the status quo or even the the uh, the opposite that they end up just staying home, which is a very real chance. If if Biden's elected, there's a, I think everyone is expecting that people hate Trump so much that they will come out and vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is, and maybe that'll happen. But it's also just as likely that it'll, it'll be a repeat of 2016 where people just go. Fuck this! I'm checking out, and then they they don't vote, and and Trump comes back into power. So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is uh, Biden's really doing well in South Carolina. You know, one of the things that that people should point out is that this is the state that uh, Strom Thurmond is from, Biden's uh, old buddy, his his friend. And it's, it's not me putting words in his mouth. Biden felt very warmly towards Strom Thurmond, who was one of the most vicious segregationists and racists. Um, in uh, certainly in in the tw- history of the twentieth century, yeah. in the US. infamously uh, infamously filibustered uh, Civil Rights Act by standing in front of the uh, Senate chambers and reading the phone book broke That's a right. record for longest uh, filibuster. That was his passion for segregation, and, and upon his passing, Biden uh, defended him and and even defended those defense remarks, defensive remarks, multiple times over. Uh, and yet, and yet, because of Biden's association with the first black president in the United States, Barack Obama. He is uh, raking in various, I don't know if they're uh, exactly endorsements just yet, but but a lot of he's getting a lot of warm reception from the black political class in South Carolina. What's up with that? Yeah, well, 
it, this is classic machine or establishment politics. Biden's a known face. He has he has relationships with these officials that go back years. I mean, you know, he he I think is the is he the seventh lo- lo- longest serving congressperson? It's something like that. I mean, he's had a very long career. He has had a lifetime to build these relationships and connections, which he has done, and uh, and so he has people going in on the ground and and Democratic officials who are connected to their their local constituents who then um, you know tell them you know Biden is your guy. This is the guy you should go for. Now that doesn't mean that this is insurmountable. Um, obviously, Trump was able to get over it. He was able to just beat the entire establishment machine. But that is, that's part of it. Is, um, and, you know, I mean, the, the Democratic officials are not, they're not ideological. Real, oh, well, no, no. Scratch that. They are ideological, but they're not people who are committed necessarily to a, a, a left-wing agenda or even a social democratic agenda. They're people who are protecting their own particular power and, and place and probably see Biden as the best uh, option for this. Uh, Biden's sort of the, the latest and the, the most successful of these um, anyone but Sanders candidates. You know, Beto O'Rourke was at for, for like a week. Then he was replaced by, by Buttigieg, who's still doing – it seems basically every single person who voted for O'Rourke went to Buttigieg in the polling now. But Biden came along, and I think uh, you know there were reports that that people were hesitant to to donate to his uh, campaign initially because they wanted to see how he went. Um, and I think now they're seeing, okay, well, look, the the weird hair sniffing, touching scandal has has come and gone, and it hasn't damaged him really. And I think they see him as the the best case to to throw their money as the establishment candidate. Yeah. Hey, everybody, pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Branko Marchatich. I just thought I'd butt in here and pitch our Patreon page. I know this isn't a very fun part of the episode, but unfortunately, in our capitalist society, it is very, very necessary. Since making the decision to produce weekly videos and launch a website, the expenses accrued by DPS Media have expanded exponentially in the past several months. So we need your help to cover those costs and to keep DPS Media alive and thriving for many years to come. I know there are a lot of projects out there that are asking you for your money, especially on Patreon. But we hope that if you listen to this show on a weekly basis and that you have benefited from the guests that come on here on a weekly basis and the hours and hours and hours of work that goes into producing this podcast and this production, that you'll throw a little money in the tip jar. So if you enjoy this program... And you want to get access to this B-side that's going to be following this episode tomorrow. That's Friday. Head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of the society today. Not only will you get access to this B-side, but you'll get access to our entire catalog of B-sides. There's a wealth of information there. And, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't Netflix. It's not Spotify. <laughs> uh, we do offer rewards for our patrons. But I ask primarily for your support and your contribution in order to keep these politics alive and thriving. As I say over and over again, we need a large and capacious socialist media ecosystem if we are going to face down the challenges that will be presented to us in the coming years. So I hope if you're able, you can do your part. And even if you don't support DPS Media, I hope that you support somebody out there because there are a lot of content creators who are working their asses off to keep this project alive in the realm of socialist media. 
All right, enough out of me. I appreciate your support, past and present. I hope you'll consider becoming a patron, if not today, maybe in weeks or months to come. And enjoy the rest of the interview with Branko Marchetich. I wonder if there isn't a, a useful parallel here in British politics where uh, Chukka Umana, uh, you know, very infamously led uh, a, a departure of uh, a handful of Labour Party and uh, Lib Dem and even Tory um, MPs. They started off as the Independent Group or TIG for short. They were forced to change or clarify their name. They, uh, they are now known as Change UK and they're falling apart. They're, they're splitting at the seams. Now, that's a fragile coalition across many parties. Uh, they never really had any policy aside from uh, just trying to play the role of being the adults in the room. And they most certainly didn't have the name recognition and the political connections of being the vice presidents uh, to the first black president of the United States, somebody who still enjoys very high rates of approval. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, perhaps the uh, <laughs> the comparison breaks apart. But what I'm suggesting is that when the independent group uh, first came out, they got a lot of support from the press. Uh, there was a lot of buzz, but their failure to produce actual policy and a, a platform and to clarify their ideological stances against the much more well, you know, established Labour Party and uh, of course the anti-Brexit UKIPper uh, Brexit party types it doomed them in the end and what i'm what i'm asking is i'm wondering if maybe we're not going to see a lot of this momentum uh peter out on the part of biden over the course of the next couple of months yeah i mean we, we very well could it's, it's definitely possible i mean hillary clinton tried this before uh which was to to try and have this inherently contradictory coalition of of both um big business corporate america wall street who were funding her campaign, and so you know had had far more influence on her, what she would do in power, while also pretending to be a, a politician of the people um, who will who would get a progressive agenda uh, passed. And Biden's trying this as well. It didn't really work out for Clinton that well. Um, obviously, there were many factors and variables in that race. But you know, I mean, one of the things that that, that I always remember about the 2016 uh, campaign is. Uh, is when the DNC was happening, the um, the convention. One of the reports, uh, I think I can't remember if it was a Clinton person or if, uh, it was a, no, it was a it was a Wall Street person who was supporting Clinton's campaign. And they said something like, and this is you know one of those cases of famous last words. And they said, well, you know, now the primary's finished, we can we can go back to supporting her. We can we can just like forget about this whole this whole thing and, and just do business as usual. Um, because, because, you know, it only matters that you are a hypocrite who courts corporate funding during the democratic primary. Once you're in the general election, that doesn't matter. And of course we saw how that worked. So it could very well be that the Biden's strategy, which is identical, has the same sort of shelf life and that it'll collapse. I mean, we don't know. It could be also that people are so, against another Trump term that they just hold their nose and vote for him anyway, no matter what. But it wouldn't be out of the question that, that we see that happen. Yeah, that's terrifying stuff. So, I mean, it seems to me we got to throw our hats in the ring. I'm going to make a, an, an appeal to, to my audience. I would presume I don't have to do this, uh, you know, for the people who are listening to this show, uh, maybe other left podcasts, uh, which will remain nameless. 
I uh, should be pushing this line a little <laughs> harder than I have. Uh, just to kind of, uh, you know, just some good-natured ribbing here, folks. No no sectarianism, just good-natured ribbing. Get on board the Bernie train is what I'm saying. I don't care if you, you, you know, you, you – if if you you know you're concerned about his inability to stoke a dual power situation in the next four years or whatever, get on board because it's the only viable way forward for the left. Let's talk about Biden's record. You've written a tremendous amount about this, starting like years ago. <laughs> you were you were quite <laughs> prescient on this. You were you were ahead of the game. Let's talk about busing. We've already talked about his farcical claim of being a civil rights, you know, uh, advocate or whatever. He was like the manager of a segregated pool or something. Talked <laughs> about talk, let's talk about a, a much more embarrassing stance that he's he's had to do a lot of uh, gymnastics to cover over in this this busing defense. Yeah, Biden's uh the, the issue that that animated his early career in the 70s in the Senate was uh opposition to busing. And this was at a time when busing was very much a, a shibboleth of liberalism. There was there was maybe not universal, but but pretty across the board support for busing among liberals. And Biden bucked uh, both liberals and his party by becoming this very vocal uh, Democrat voice against busing, teaming up with Jesse Helms, uh, another of one of the the tremendous racists of of the U.S. twentieth uh, century. And tried repeatedly to to prevent busing, partly, I think, because of opposition in Delaware to busing. There was a lot of fear over this. So electoral concerns most likely played a role. But during this time, Biden, you know, you can, you can just find quote after quote of Biden saying um, some pretty horrific things. Things like, you know, I, uh, you know, I don't see why. You know, having your curly head son um, next to my my white son as necessary uh, for, for educational attainment, you know, saying things like, I don't feel bad about what my ancestors did. Uh, you know, that's not on me saying things like, uh, what, what else did he say? I mean, there's, there's so many quotes. Um, he at one point said he and kind of, kind of boasted that, that he had made it respectable for liberals to oppose busing, you know, giving himself credit basically for turning the party around um, on that issue. And you know, uh, some of the bills that he that he put forward that he proposed, one of them actually went even further than busing and, and would have hamstrung any court action to uh, to to deal with segregation more broadly. Uh, and the New York Times uh, called it something like a, a step backward for civil rights. Yeah. Which is even more damaging, really, because busing was a very tepid, milquetoast way of dealing with the very real uh, sort of material effects of Jim Crow segregation and redlining and all the rest of it. It was very, very weak. And I think kind of uh, I mean, I'm not even sure that, you know, I'm not even sure that now in today's you know age, if we were to try to judge the merits of historical policies, if socialists would look at busing and say, like, yes, that was a good idea. That was the best way forward there. Um, however, it's a it's a crude, it's a very crude, yeah, it's uh, a very crude tool. measure of of doing something that I think we could do in a much more robust way. But but your point there about Biden um, holding back uh, though that that legislation that uh, would have potentially opened up the way for that more robust path to fighting discrimination in housing and employment and schooling and all the rest of it that socialists would want, like that's even more. 
disgusting. And I did read that piece uh, from the New York Times calling his action a tremendous step backwards for civil rights. And it was. I mean, it's just absolutely abysmal mm. uh, that, that he stood in the yeah. way of that. And, and <clears throat> I think the, the other thing about it is that uh, it's part of this pattern in Biden's career. Biden's entire political philosophy and, um, I guess, political success for, for his life, throughout his life, has been to poke a thumb in the eye of, of liberalism, uh, which, you know, in the, in the 70s, it was, it was, liberalism was a little bit different to, you know, the, the, the really corporate liberalism that we have now. What he was really doing, it was, it was, a, it was a rebuke of the left. That was uh, viewed in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s as a, and really, I mean, until pretty recently, as a sign of seriousness. And, and that's how he distinguished himself. He would always talk about how he was this guy who, who didn't listen to the liberal groups. He didn't listen to these special interests, quote unquote, you know, uh, which was just code for, you know, whether it's civil rights or, or gay rights or uh, women's rights and so on and so forth. Um, he was very proud of that. And I think that that's part of what this busing thing is. It's the, it shows Biden's willingness and, and really eagerness to go against progressive goals, uh, which would have far more disastrous consequences later on um, through the decades when he teamed up with, with his friend Strom Thurmond to pass various uh, tough and crime legislation and, uh, and war and drugs legislation and, and beyond. So I think we really have to look at it in that way. Yeah, in the context here, I mean, it, it would be abysmal uh, in any context, but the context that 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 he performed those types of uh, acts in is even more abysmal. You consider that this was the era of you know Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition, where there was a viable like anti-racist, you know, social democratic movement inside the Democratic Party trying to address these concerns, and then there's Biden, right, holding hands with Jesse Helms and Strom Thurmond. To try to redefine the legislative, legislative and policy trajectory of the Democratic Party against, you know, Jackson and his Rainbow Coalition for all of the flaws that it might have had. Um, that's a really disgusting rightward coup from inside the party, which was ultimately successful. And you saw that come to fruition in the Clinton administration. And then Biden gets to hold hands with the first black president and, and claim a final victory inside the party as sort of completely rebranding a lot of these neoliberal strategies as the so-called progressive agenda for, for America and the democratic party going forward. However, that ran aground in Hillary Clinton. So let's let's hope that uh, that we can sort of continue exposing this stuff. Talk up to me about his defense, his strident defense of mass incarceration. Yeah, uh, well, he he sings a different tune now, of course, because I think I think partly because he does see the the horrendous damage that the policies that he instituted in the eighties and nineties have done. Um, so I think there's a general a genuine uh, kind of moral revulsion at this but also i think he sees which way the winds have changed the, wind, the winds are blowing electorally and, and ideologically and, and has to catch up to that but biden in the 80s and 90s he was probably i mean one of the sanders who was most responsible for for instituting the uh the carceral state that, that exists now the sort of system of mass incarceration there was biden who introduced the, the law that um 
created the infamous sentencing disparity between uh, crack and powder cocaine. It was Biden who introduced a bill that established mandatory minimums, very harsh mandatory minimums, and abolished parole and uh, all manner of other things. And he wasn't always successful. I mean, there's, if, if you read my piece on this, there's example after example of, of bills they put forward, some of which didn't work. You know, there was a, a sort of precursor to the Patriot Act that put in place all these authoritarian, tough on crime, tough on terrorism measures, which um, one of which did not did not go through. Another one, though, that he that he did support, which was um, Bob Dole's bill in 1996, that has been savaged by civil rights advocates and civil liberties advocates in the years since, who say that it did a lot of damage. And Biden was at the forefront of this. You know, we know from documentation that was left over from the Bill Clinton administration that he was behind the scenes urging Clinton to, to take crime on as an issue saying, you know, we have to get ahead of the Republicans of this. I mean, it was a completely electorally minded strategy, you know. And and it's not as if I, – I think there's this thing uh, – Josh Marshall of uh, TPM, for example, th- wrote this, um, this editorial where he said, well, you know, yeah, the crime bill was bad, but people are, people are taking it out of context. You know, this was a different time. Suggesting that uh, the, the crime bill was uncontroversial at the time and, and people just thought tough and crime measures were the way to go. Mm-hmm. Well, this is not true. Right. Biden himself in – the early 80s, when Reagan wanted to, to institute tough and crime measures, spoke out against it. He said that it was a self-defeating and, and wrong-headed policy, that it would just make things worse, that it's better to put money towards treatment and rehabilitation. So he knew he knew this. And when the Biden, uh, when the Biden crime bill was, was being shepherded through uh, Congress and, and ultimately was successful, there were objections from organizations like ACLU and uh, the NAACP and, and others who, and you know, you're going to say, well, of course, yeah, okay, the, the liberal organizations. So, you know, yes, of course they're going to they're gonna oppose this stuff. But also the Washington Post published numerous op-eds opposing the bill, which they said was just insane. And, and I believe the word, the word that they used was rotten. And they said, you know, this is not about stopping crime. This is entirely so politicians can posture and, and present themselves as being uh, tough on crime, which is true. And, you know, you can find speeches from Biden during this time where he says things like, you know, well, this is the, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party is for 60 new death penalties. The, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party is for this terrible, terrible measure and that ter- measure. He does this whole thing and he says, you know, I'd, I'd like to see the, the, the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. That was – it was a conscious way to, to take – the Republican issue of crime and claim it as a democratic one. And uh, that might have worked at least temporarily as a as an electoral strategy, but uh, it's obviously had a devastating effect on and uh, you know non-white communities particularly across the US. but also I mean not not just uh, non-white communities, also uh, basically any communities that are that are low income. You know, poor white communities have been devastated by this stuff as well, not to the same extent. It's had an across-the-board, pretty terrible effect on on American society, and and Biden was key to it. Yeah, yeah. So you have pieces that have been out in Jacobin over the years. I'll link to all of those in the show notes. It's going to be a lot uh, of of essays and articles for people to check out. They're relatively short, very accessible, very readable. People should have these arguments under their belts because we're going to have to have these arguments with uh, people who don't agree with us over the course of the next nine months. And uh, you've performed a very valuable service in making them readily available and ready to hand. 
you know, you saw Biden, the neoliberal, Joe Biden, the unreliable pro-choice advocate, Joe Biden, you know, uh, something about his his uh, anti-immigrant enabler. There it is. I love that. That's great. Um, yeah. In the era of build the build the wall. And, you know, Trump's xenophobia, Biden has, uh, you know, quite predictably in his given his association with the Obama administration, the deporter in chief, if you will, Biden has not been a reliable defender of immigrants uh, at any point in his career. We're going to have to skip over that for time. Let's let's finish up and then we'll move into the B side in a much in a kind of um, natural organic flow. But let's let's end up here with his hawkish positions. And obviously we'll have to talk about his very special boy, Hunter Biden, and his association, not only with the Ukrainian government, but with other, other um, you know, uh, foreign policy, military, industrial complex establishments. Because our B side, we're going to chat a little bit about uh, Russia, Russia Gates, uh, the Trump administration's activities in Venezuela, and their beating of the drum in Iran. Um, so if anybody is hoping that Biden, President Biden, will reverse course on these hawkish policies that we're seeing in the Trump administration, they might want to think again. Tell us why. Yeah, Biden has been a pretty – I mean it's come and gone. And this is, this is one of the things about Biden is that uh, the, the trouble is it's how political wins go. And it's also how – how he's pressured from the right because he tends to capitulate very easily. Um, so Biden doesn't—he's uh, yeah—he has some positions on international relations that I think are, are pretty, um, pretty good, pretty admirable. He's—he's uh, he's always been in favor of arms control, and he's been at the forefront of that. So I want to give him credit where credit's due. But you know, we are—we're talking about why he would be a, a poor commander in chief or whatever you want to say. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the rundown for that. And I think that's important because as, as good as Biden has been, the, the, the bad things that he's done have been so so bad that it's if it doesn't negate the good that he's done, it certainly – well, in some cases it really does. But, but I think it, it, it should give us pause about um, you know, how he would be as a, as, as, as a president. Uh, Biden, for example, supported – Margaret Thatcher's war in the Falklands, uh, very ardently, put forth a resolution supporting it that even Jesse Helms thought went too far, which is saying something. He was obviously, well, he, he voted, against, uh, voted against the first Gulf War, so give him credit there. He did support the war in Kosovo, and similarly later on in, um, uh, in 2007, he supported uh, a no-fly zone in uh, Sudan. So similar thing, kind of you know this liberal humanitarian interventionist kind of justification for it. Right. Those mid '90s interventions were liberal wars, whereas you know the Iraq War was uh, was Bush's war. So that's uh, Bush right. one, I should say. So you can see the kind of partisan stripes there showing in his willingness to go maim, murder, and devastate uh, brown populations worldwide. And and the Iraq War, of course, is one of the big stains on his legacy and on his, on his voting record, and. Uh, I think it's worth noting that it's uh, that that stuff was a little while ago now, so people don't uh, necessarily remember or or even know. But Biden didn't just vote for the Iraq War; he was one of the chief Democrats who really paved the way for it. Because uh, as I believe he was the chair of the 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 Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, so you know, really the 
the face of the Democratic Party when it came to foreign policy at that time. And he, under political pressure again, in a, a time of jingoism and an appetite for war, Biden did not really push back. He, he made some tepid statements for, for a while, maybe the first four to five months, six months after September 11. He made noises about opposing the Iraq war and, you know, hey, let's slow down. But I think political pressure got to him and he eventually became, if you read articles from, from 2002 and, and beyond, he was constantly cited as the Democratic voice that was in support of the Iraq war. He would, you know, he went on uh, cable news shows and, and said things like, you know, well, this, you know, if this guy is gone, isn't gone in five years, you know, we're going to regret it. Fear mongering about, uh, you know, <laughs> he actually uh, sort of gave the Bush administration, their strategy for how to sell the war, because he said, you know, well, the only thing that will really justify war is if uh, you can make make a link with uh, Al-Qaeda uh, between Saddam. And of course, that's exactly what the administration did. He he would kind of go back and forth where he would, he would kind of oppose the war, but not really. He would just sort of, he would make noises about how, well, you know, you have to get congressional approval first or... You know, let's not rush into it. But basically, ostensibly taking the Bush administration's position, which uh, ultimately all led up to his vote for the Iraq War. So I think it's important to note that that Biden was he wasn't just one other guy voting for Iraq, which would be bad enough. I think that's a tremendous kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for. It's a tremendous sign of bad judgment. It's a tell for how you might act in future circumstances that would be very catastrophic. Exactly. Yeah, but and we he, don't it even sounds have to me like to, he was – sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say we don't have to like really imagine it. I mean right now with Trump trying to uh, organize a coup in Venezuela, uh, Biden has said that he's basically backing that effort. So it, it, he hasn't really learned anything it seems like. Yeah, yeah this, 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 this desire for this kind of liberal uh, humanitarian intervention – which has been increasingly rebranded in a, in a much more murderous and direct boots on the ground sort of way, even since Kosovo. And Kosovo was 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 very murderous. Um, the cruise missile liberalism has turned into advisors. This turns into boots on the ground, which turns into you know decades long uh, quagmire uh, intervention uh, interventions. And Biden has been at the forefront of of that uh, that transition and that intensification, if you will. Talk to us a little bit about Hunter Biden. We'll go out on this because this really speaks to not only just the kind of corruption of the family and the dealings that they're involved in, but the real kind of, um, I mean, the very Trumpishness of of this man and his family and the way that they have embedded themselves, you know, in in the uh, f- foreign policy, military, industrial complex establishment. Yeah, one of the things that sunk. Hillary Clinton and um, and I think really uh, led voters to stay home and not really be enthused about about her campaign was the the swap narrative that, that Hillary Clinton is part of the swap that she was taking money from from various corporate interests and and blurring the line between her public service and her uh, private enrichment and Biden has this exact same problem and. You know, you better believe that that Trump is going to make hay of this. He already is, in fact. Like you said, Hunter Biden has conveniently, somehow, some way, always his Hunter Biden's private business dealings have just golly gosh happened to intersect with um, 
with what Biden was doing as, you know, an elected yeah. official. Yeah. He's a chip off the old block, that Hunter Biden, I tell you. He's just yeah. following his father's it's, footsteps, just all accidental-like. So there's some nepotism going on there or something like that. Uh, we'll talk to uh, talk to our audience about the, spe- the specifics of those dealings because this stuff hasn't really come to light yet. It looks like it might. He might be testifying in, in front of Congress at some point about his, uh, his <laughs> yeah. dealings in Ukraine, for example. So talk to us about those specifics. Well, it's it's yeah, it's so strange that at the same time that MBNA, this credit card company that uh, donates heavily to Biden, that was pushing these bills like the bankruptcy bill that, that Biden ended up voting for, also hired uh, his son, and then he rose through its ranks uh, very quickly. Very odd. Who who knows what what that what the reason could be there? There's also uh, stuff around lobbying Hunter Biden was doing. Um, for the University of Delaware, uh, he was actually doing it with one of Biden's former advisors who became a lobbyist. So, you know, again, that intersection. The thing that's going to really create headaches for Biden and, and the Democratic Party, particularly if they if they really do nominate Biden, is that when Biden was the administration, the Obama administration's point man on all things Ukraine after the uh, Maidan revolution, in uh, 2014, Hunter Biden was, again, coincidentally, I'm sure because of his, his deep experience in the fossil fuel sector, uh, he joined the board of uh, Burisma Holdings, which is this um, natural gas company in uh, in the Ukraine. And at the same time that he had joined the board, Burisma was, uh, was undertaking a lobbying campaign in D.C. to win over public officials. So very, very, uh, very normal stuff going on there, and and at the same time, this is by the way, while Biden was trying to pressure the Ukrainian government on corruption. Meanwhile, here's a son just popping up on the board of this Ukrainian yeah. gas. Yeah, company. he's like a he's like a Paul Manafort wannabe. Like, let's not forget that Manafort's doing hard time in federal prison. Uh, I don't think that's exactly on the horizon for Hunter Biden, but uh, he's he's in the same mold. Of of kind of these international shysters who who use shady de- shady dealings between <laughs> lobbyists and elected officials and you know managers of capital to enrich themselves and uh, you're you're seeing this. There was a Fox News story that uh, that that broke last night. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, among others, are weighing in on Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine and elsewhere, and uh, it's it's definitely emerging as uh, an issue for 2020 already. No matter what, what yeah. The facts let me are. let me uh, kind of go into just just very briefly, uh, so people kind of know what's going on. Basically, the allegation is that uh, Burisma was being probed for corruption by Ukraine's top prosecutor. Now, there's conflicting reports. Some reports, including the New York Times and and The Hill, have said that Biden, who who publicly boasted about having the prosecutor fired, basically leaning on the Ukrainian government saying, we're not going to give you this aid unless you fire this guy, that at that very time, he was in the middle of a probe of Burisma and that he was planning to interview Biden's son. Now, there's another other reports, Bloomberg reports that those things actually came at different times, that, that the probe already had happened and that, that nothing had come of it when Biden had um, pressured Ukraine to, to fire the, the prosecutor. Now, we will maybe find out what the truth is. But I think regardless, I think there's two things. One, this, the, this all stems from the fact that Biden's son 
was essentially cashing in on his father's uh, public service. And this kind of this history of his family making money or trying to make money out of uh, out of what Biden was doing as an elected official. So that's one. That's a bad look anyway. Secondly, even if this is if it is overblown and it's more smoke than fire, it, it really doesn't matter because the Trump administration is already leaning on this. They are already trying to make this into Hillary Clinton's uh, emails 2.0. Uh, this is the thing that's going to dog Biden for the rest of the the campaign. If he becomes a nominee, they are going to hit this hard. Trump has the has power. The Republicans have power. They, like you said, they can they they can launch. You know, they they can scrutinize this. Have uh, Hunter Biden testify. All this kind of thing. I mean, that, it, there's every indication this is what's going to happen. William Barr is uh, reportedly looking into exactly. it. Exactly. It's 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 the ultimate gotcha point uh, for Barr and Trump to go on the offensive. Um, in the wake yeah. of this uh, Mueller report. Uh, yeah. And I think the most important thing is that similar to the way that uh, Clinton wasn't really able to take on Trump over his corruption and his uh, his various business dealings because it obviously opened up her to attack. And of course, we know Trump does not care. He, he doesn't care how shamelessly hypocritical he is. He will go guns blazing on the attack all out, which is what he did to Clinton. It's the same reason why... Couldn't, couldn't really take Trump on for his uh, sexual assaults because she <laughs> she had spent decades defending her husband over the very same thing, and I, and I think it's not just this is not just going to be a damaging story for Biden. It's going to preclude him from actually going after Trump for the 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 reasons they should. And so you know what what could very likely happen is and this is what Clinton did in the twenty sixteen election because they can't take Trump on for these actually legitimate things that people really don't like, they have to go out after him for, for the dumbest reasons. So, you know, oh, he uh, he's in bed with Putin, you know, and how well did that turn out? Of course, that was a complete bust. So, so there's a real real problem. There's a, there's a chance that they are going to have to lean on the same sort of republican light messaging that voters don't actually care that much about uh, because they will not want to draw too much attention to Biden's own, um, like you said, Trumpish qualities or, or, or uh, elements of his history. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it, as, as always, it's a cliche at this point, but I'll risk it. You know, when, when, you, when given the choice between uh, two, two soft Republican platforms, uh, the electorate will choose the, the, real, the actual Republican. Right. I mean, and so you're, I think, I think you're absolutely right to point to that. And it's, it's, it's on the one hand, it's horrifying should Biden get the nomination that, uh, the, the one tool, the one weapon that the mainstream neoliberal Democrats, you know, in the leadership anyway, have been honing over the past two to three years at this point is this corruption, uh, tool uh, to use against Trump. And if Biden is subjected to the same types of criticism, he'll have to go soft on that, which leaves him what weapon exactly? Certainly not social democracy. <laughs> uh, maybe a little. Maybe he can hint <laughs> yeah. at this. Uh, you know, th- at this sort of uh, faux liberal wokeness that he worked at a segregated pool once or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> you know, anyway. Well, and it's also. I think it's worth uh, noting uh, just on that point that. This appears to be the crux of Biden's campaign. His campaign announcement was all about Charlottesville and how Trump is this uh, repulsive racist um, who is an aberration, uh, which is you know, obviously wrong. Uh, not the racist part, the aberration part. 
and and yet the guy who was making this uh, claim is a guy who worked with segregationists, former segregationists, to pass uh, tough on crime measures that overwhelmingly devastated black communities and opposed busing in the 70s in, in very kind of terms that, that make our skin crawl now. So it, it's, it's another example of the way that his campaign is just has so many – is just riddled with self-contradictions that perhaps – if you're optimistic, you think that that it'll be able to weather this, and they'll be able to kind of survive, and and this rickety, self-contradictory campaign will will be able to just keep maintaining itself until uh, until 2020, uh, until the, the the voting starts. But I mean, uh, it could very well likely be the uh, the exact opposite of that. Yeah, right. And we're seeing we're seeing uh, cracks in the facade. He was cornered in a restaurant uh, the other day, asked about. AOC's criticism, uh, very harsh criticisms. And he just sort of said, uh, you know, I never said anything about uh, finding a middle ground on climate uh, issues. Those words never came out of my mouth. I've been a strident, uh, you know, proponent of the green revolution my entire career, which is again, right. He can say whatever he wants at this point. Uh, it's just totally self-contradictory, but it, he's he's bringing out a lot of the contradictions inside of the party and on the left to center left inside uh, American politics. And I think principled socialists and leftists uh, need to continue jumping up and down on those cracks in the sidewalk as hard and as fast as we can to try to widen them uh, and make them undeniable in the public discourse. And uh, yeah, your work is doing uh, your work is going a great distance to help us do that. So let's move on to the B side. We're going to continue this discussion about foreign policy and uh, this kind of uh, insider cronyism in the foreign policy community, uh, talking about Mike Pompeo and John Bolton's, I almost, I mean, I called it like pro-intervention. I was called it like hawkish. I don't know, man. It's, it's off the fucking charts. Uh, their murderous <sighs> bloodlust. Like I, I think we need Matt Taibbi to roll in here and give us like a a, turn, a quick turn of phrase the way that he's so good at sometimes. <laughs> like you know the the uh, Goldman Sachs uh, an allegory of them being a uh, something like a blood sucking vampire squid shoving its blood funnels into anything that smells like money. Like we need we need <laughs> we need a turn of phrase. We need a Taibbiism in order to categorize. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, 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 the Pompeo Bolton nexus, but, uh, maybe you're the man for the job. We're going to take to the B side. If you're not a patron of the dead pundit society, you're going to miss out on that. So head over to www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button. You'll get access to the B side that is very soon to follow as well as our entire back catalog of B sides. And you'll help support the uh, the DPS media launch that's forthcoming in the next week or so. We're going to be launching videos on a weekly basis. We're going to be reaching out to that YouTube audience that is <laughs> disgustingly right wing. Uh, I think <laughs> not not by accident. You know, it's sort of that's you know YouTube has become the haunt uh, for the alt right and these ethno nationalists. It's really disgusting, but it's largely because of our relative absence over there as a left. And uh, I'm going to do my part to try to rectify that in some small way. So help support DPS and uh, we'll build that project together. And thanks for joining us, Branko. We'll see you over there on the B side. All right. See you there. Oh, this new crazy mother.